0: The Titanic lay on the ocean floor for 73 years, down nearly 4,000 meters in cold Atlantic water when Bob Ballard found it. Some said it went down intact. Others, eyewitnesses, said it split, that the ship's last moments were full of noise and waves and drama before finally going under. Expeditions searching along the ocean floor weren't sure what to expect. After first finding it, it took Bob a year to get underwater, to actually see the Titanic with his own eyes. And after being whipped by underwater currents, sitting in salty waters for over 70 years, when Bob actually saw the hull, half of it was rusted, corroded but the other half was perfectly preserved. Inside, chandeliers still hung. Plates and clocks and mirrors were still intact. And the farther in he went, the more pristine it seemed. Today, stories about time, finding links to our ancient selves we thought were gone forever and what it means to fight back against the inevitability of decay. Welcome to Expedition Earth, a podcast where we reconnect to the wonders of our world and find a way to protect them. I'm your host, National Geographic Explorer, Lily Sedeghatt. Together, we'll rediscover what makes us human.
1: There's more history in the deep sea than all the museums of the world combined.
0: This is Bob Ballard.
1: Uh, the UN estimates that there are over 3 million shipwrecks. I have found more ancient shipwrecks in the deep sea than any human on Earth. And I found 55. And we have another 3 million, whatever the number is. So that the opportunity to find all these lost chapters of human history and rewrite history is waiting for the next generation.
0: Bob is many things. Explorer, educator, author, TV producer, scientist, U.S. Naval officer, humanitarian.
1: I've been spending most of my life going somewhere in the ocean that no human being has ever seen before.
0: Bob is most famous for discovering the Titanic, but exploring deep underwater, he's also found ships sunk in the battles of World War II, wrecks of ancient vessels preserved by the waters of the Black Sea. And he considers his most important discovery something he found exploring the ocean's mountain ranges.
1: Think about it, a mountain range that's 70,000 kilometers long, that covers 23% of the Earth's total surface area, yet we went to the moon before we went to the largest feature of our own planet.
0: Deep underwater, traversing ridges and valleys and cracks that run through the East Pacific, Bob found something that changed our very understanding of life itself.
1: There are literally tens of thousands of active volcanoes under the ocean this very minute, creating the earth's outer skin. But can they're right next to it, giant spires uh, that look like black smoking chimneys, but they're not. They're literally belching out minerals, copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold in commercial concentration.
0: Deep sea hydrothermal vents, home to life in extreme environments, places without sunlight, with temperatures, chemical concentrations that we had no idea could
1: support life. Giant worms, a four meter worm, thousands of them, like a bouquet of roses, and they're inhaling poisonous. Gases coming out of the fumaroles where the volcanoes are. Clams, and you open the clam and it has human-like blood. And then I find that its entire body, in the same case of the worm, is full of a bacterium called an extremophile. A creature that's taken over the internal organs of these other creatures in a symbiotic relationship, not parasitic.
0: To that point, We didn't fully understand the chemistry of the ocean. And the discovery even changed ideas about the origin of life on planet Earth.
1: For the first time, we balanced all the equations and rewrote the chemistry books.
0: When Bob and I sat down to talk, I asked where his passion for the water began. And I didn't realize he fell in love with the same ocean I did in my hometown of San Diego, California. So when you were growing up in San Diego and you saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time, do you remember that feeling, what you saw, what it felt like?
1: Oh, salt air, the smell of salt air, plus the smell of the giant seaweed, the kelp that comes ashore. I also fell in love with the tidal pools. Tide
0: pools are these kaleidoscopic pockets of life. When the tide comes in, it covers rocks along the shore. And when it withdraws, it leaves pools of salt water, hundreds of mini aquariums with starfish, flower-like sea anemones, crabs scuttling for cover among the rock.
1: You know, it was an amazing introduction to the changing face of the sea that just kept going into deeper and deeper and deeper.
0: As we talked, he also brought up changes that he's seen.
1: Like all of us, we thought the Earth, we could take all we wanted that it was boundless. Remember, I was born six months after World War II began. I've watched just farmland turning into houses, forests being cut down.
0: One in particular stood out to me, Mission Bay, a waterway used primarily for recreation, where I would almost never see wildlife. But it looked much different when Bob lived in Southern California.
1: I lived in San Diego when there was creatures were jumping in the water in Mission Bay. They're gone. I remember seeing marlin and billfish. I have never seen one jump since. So I've watched this loss of life to see what has happened to where I grew up. It's not where I grew up. It's, it's, it's gone.
0: While Bob's work is about discovery, in a sense... Much of what he does is about recovering what's been lost. Shipwrecks. Ancient pieces of history. Often, things we didn't realize we'd forgotten. Bob's current project is the Nautilus exploration program. From a vessel called the Nautilus, he launches ocean expeditions and uses robots to make new discoveries.
1: And the beauty of my deep sea robot is it loves staying down there. It doesn't have to go to the bathroom. It doesn't have to have a meal. It can just stay down there for days.
0: The Nautilus broadcast their expeditions live. Everything from mapping the ocean and finding plane wrecks to close encounters with sperm whales. Gulper eels rippling and ballooning their massive jaws. Ghost sharks infected with parasites swimming blind along the sandy bottom.
1: And by the way, the animals don't run away. I've done it in the ocean. I put underwater robots down there and I drive around. And the animals don't run away. They go, well, is this is a robot. It's not gonna kill me. So I see our technology turning everyone into explorers and being able to go places most of us can't go.
0: Among their gallery are whale falls. Whales that have passed away, fallen to the bottom of the ocean, and become a feast for worms and fish and octopi. One that the Nautilus found looked fresh. In the video, the whale's skeletal structure is upright, its ribs still intact, and it looked almost like a museum reconstruction. But the team went back a year later and found that the ribs had collapsed. The whale's body seemed like he was being absorbed by the ocean floor. Watching the video, listening to the scientists talk about the whale and its slow decay, it made me wonder what it meant for the rest of us, for how we live. How do we push back against this reality and seize life while we still can? Bob's work with hydrothermal vents reaches back to questions about the earth millions of years old. And while his work with the Titanic and World War II wrecks is relatively recent, he's also searching for answers, somewhere in between.
1: Remember that during the Ice Age, water fell around 120 meters. So drain the ocean 120 meters, an amazing amount of landscape is connected. And those are the paths of human migration.
0: Much of our understanding regarding the path of human migration is clear. But some of the details, some of the answers to how it happened, remain unanswered.
1: Homo sapiens came out of Africa, out of the Danakil region. Africa was surrounded by water and desert. Until the interglacial periods, as they moved out of Africa, they headed straight down to India, over to Australia. They headed into China, and then they got up to Siberia. And during what we call the last glacial maximum, which was 22,000 years ago, there was 15 million cubic kilometers of ice on the land. So sea level went down, and out of that emerged this land bridge called Beringia, where you could get from Siberia to Alaska.
0: Glaciers covered much of North America at the time. And one of the questions scientists still have is how exactly people got from Beringia through North and South America. One theory suggests that there was an inland route through North America. Another suggests that people followed the coastline. Sea levels were lower at the time, so ancient migration routes would now be underwater.
1: And I proposed that they went along the shoreline. There are caves. And there are caves at six levels, and this is all over the world. During that 22,000 years, sea level stopped six times. They were called stillstands, and during them, they made caves. And I have gone out and proved that there are caves at all six stillstands. And we found one that we just explored a few weeks ago. We were off Southern California on a cave that was at 70 meters. When sea level was about 12,000 years ago, and we went in and we sampled the sediments and found human DNA.
0: The discovery could have huge impacts on our understanding of history, not only filling in detail for human migration patterns, but opening up the door for exploration in underwater caves that could hold a wealth of untold knowledge.
1: We are at a critical moment in human history. I'm not worried about the earth being around for billions of years. I'm not worried about life being around for billions of years. I'm really concerned about the human race being around even to the end of this century. So the clock is ticking and it's a serious thing. Your generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generations and sees new horizons only you can see that we did not see. It's all about hoisting that next generation of explorers on your shoulders and say, what do you see? And it's a constant process of learning and learning and learning. And like I say, the most important one that I've learned in my generation is the earth is alive and it's in charge. I discovered the Titanic with robot Argo in 1985. But it was the next year when I got in my submarine and I physically went down. Well, no sooner did we get in the submarine, flood our tanks, and started down, everything started going wrong in the submarine. The, the, the tracking system went out, so I had no idea where we were. The sonar went out, so we couldn't reach out beyond our flashlight to see anything. Everything was going wrong, and my pilot says, we're going to have to terminate the dive because we don't know where we are. And I said, I do. So naturally, we landed. We landed on mud, and my pilot says, well, smarty pants, where's the Titanic? I closed my eyes, and I went, it's over there, and I pointed. And he says, how do you know? I just, it's over there. And they said, all right, well, we'll drive over there. And so we began driving. And we started to see big mud balls. There's no mud balls in the ocean. And I said, follow the mud balls. And then we came to this wall of mud. And I went, it's on the other side. Then we I went around the corner and out of the gloom comes this wall, a wall. Of steel, and I went, yeah, that's it. Well, remember when they built the Titanic, they put anti-rust paint on it. You know, you if you look at a lot of ships, they have a red thing just below the water because it anti-fouling. Now, I my I said the paint's still working because there was no rust on it. And then the pilot says, "We got to get out of here. We're taking water in our batteries," and he. Dropped, and so I saw it for moments. But as we rose up past the bilge keel and the part below the water, portholes came into view. It was like eyes looking at me, and these eyes, our spotlights from the sub, our flashlights, were bouncing off of the windows, and it was like a haunted house.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Cable TV. Wishes you good days. To learn more about Bob and his work, check out National Geographic's show Bob Ballard and Explorers Life, where he reveals the personal triumphs and tragedies behind his most exciting discoveries. Expedition Earth is produced by National Geographic Asia in partnership with the National Geographic Society. I'm your host, Lily Sedigat. Thank you for listening.